0: My name is Ben McNaughton. I'm a consultant paediatrician here in, in Belfast. I have a special interest in respiratory medicine but I'm presenting today Status Epilepticus. So very much from a general paediatric add on as opposed to a neurologist's opinion on it. So what is Status Epilepticus? Well the International League Against Epilepsy is not as it sounds a superhero um, organization set up to rival the Avengers but rather it's an organization which is devised and funded really to share educational resources and and learning around for parents, patients, carers, um, and and the wider sort of government influence, government policies and and public education around epilepsy. And they define status epilepticus as a condition resulting from either a failure of the mechanism responsible for seizure termination or from the initiation of mechanisms, which lead to abnormally prolonged seizures. Um, And their time point that they use is five minutes. So why is the five minutes significant? Well, that's because we know that 90% of seizures under five minutes will terminate um, spontaneously without any medical intervention. However, if if you continue to seize after five minutes, there's a 70 to 80% chance that you will be continuing to seize without any intervention by 30 minutes. And that's important because that 30 minute time point is the point where the risk of significant ongoing morbidity and mortality increases. Why well, include a talk and status epilepticus in a program like today's? Well, there's three main reasons. The first is that it's common. It's the most common medical, pediatric, neurological emergency. Um, and for those of us who work in general pediatrics, pediatric ED, um, adult EDs, anesthetics, PICU, it's something which we're going to see on a relatively frequent basis throughout our career. The incidence is estimated to be about 20 per 100,000 children in the developed world. The second reason is that, whilst it's common, it has potential to carry significant morbidity and mortality. It can be fatal, now thankfully, there are less deaths in in children from status epilepticus than adults. However, the major concern is morbidity and mortality that can result from prolonged um, seizure episodes and that can be development of epilepsy to ongoing significant um, neurological insults and sequelae. Therefore, it is important that we know how to treat it effectively and in an efficient and timely manner. The third reason is that actually, it's an interesting area in terms of the guidelines because the guidelines have changed over the last few years based on recent evidence. So it's important that we review these and recognize that we're practicing up-to-date medicine one of the biggest determinants in terms of outcome is actually the reason is the underlying ideology or the cause for the seizure in the first instance and the international league against epilepsy broadly divide these causes into two categories the first are known causes or symptomatic causes and the second are the unknown or cryptogenic causes known causes are further delineated into six main categories so structural that could be things such as um, cerebrovascular insults, space occupying lesions, etc. cetera. Infectious causes such as meningitis or encephalitis, um, TB, mal- cerebral malaria. Um, metabolic causes, so some of our mitochondrial disorders or metabolic disturbances. Um, toxicity and drug-induced, now that can be toxicity and, and drug-induced um, seizures as a result of illicit um, uh, or prohibited substances, but can also be from... Um, Sort of over um dose or, or underdosing of prescribed anti-epileptic medications, for example, or other um medications which affect this, the central nervous system. Inflammatory causes include the autoimmune conditions um, and some neurocutaneous syndromes, and then genetic causes. There's a, a wide range, but things like traves, fragile X, etc. Can Um, can cause seizures. And it's really important to have an idea of the underlying cause as well as while we're working through the seizure algorithm. ALSG is the Advanced Life Support Group um, and they are are responsible for um, the APLS, the Advanced Paediatric Life Support Courses. They also are responsible for publishing um, internationally recognized guidelines on the management of common paediatric emergencies. And this guidance is endorsed by the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health. First manual came out in 1997, and since then it's been reviewed at least on a five-yearly cycle. This is the most recent edition, the seventh edition. And as I mentioned, the guidance, the guidelines of management of status epileptics have changed over the last two years based on recent evidence. So it is really important that we're aware of what these changes are. Talk through then we're gonna use a case-based scenario so, picture the scene: pediatric registrar in a district general hospital. It's eight a.m. It is November, as it is now. It's the middle of bronchiolitis season. You've had a busy night and um, clerking in countless numbers of children with bronchiolitis. You're ready for some tea, toast, and to get handed over and get out of the building when you get a standby call to Resus. You arrive in the Resus department, and there's you. There's an emergency department registrar. And a pediatric SHO who accompany you. And the, the, the nurse, um, nurse and nursing sister gives you basic information that was provided from the paramedics. They've got a four year old girl. She's got a background of complex neurodisability and epilepsy. She had started a prolonged generalized tonic seizure that morning. Parents have midazolam from her history at home and they give her an appropriate dose after five minutes. And the paramedics arrived really very quite quickly and within about five minutes later had her administered a second dose of benzodiazepine um, in the form of rectal diazepam at the appropriate dose. Their estimated time of arrival is two minutes and the paramedics have informed you that there's ongoing general on chronic seizure activity. You've got a couple of minutes and, and how you use those minutes is really up to you, but it's important to think about how you maximize the time effectively. One of the ways in which we might want to do this is to allocate roles within the team, calculating wet flag calculations and preempting what drugs or medications that you anticipate you might need if this um, seizure is is ongoing. It's also worth taking a a minute or two to to consider the key aims of managing a child who presents with status epilepticus. The first of those is to support the airway, breathing, and circulation. The second, is to identify and to treat any potentially life-threatening causes. And the third is to terminate the seizure in a timely manner, and in doing so, to try and prevent recurrence, reduce the risk of, of long-term morbidity and mortality, and also reduce the need for intensive care admission. Whilst it's important that you treat the seizure rapidly, the approach to a ch- I present the Epilepticus, it's the same as the approach to any resuscitation of a critically unwell child. It's important to get a brief history of the, the, the child, of, of what's happened um, and they, uh, an understanding of medication administered to date on any regular medication. And in this situation, it's also important to check whether with parents or carers or the paramedics, whoever's with the child, if they know if this child has an, uh, an individualized seizure plan. As some of these children will um, have their own seizure plans and um, so that's important to check. It's also important to do a quick focused physical examination to look for any obvious or potentially life threatening causes. And then it's a case of working out and treating and assessing your airway, breathing and circulation, whilst also not delaying before too long before getting treating your the, the seizure itself. Airway, the goal here really is to maintain the airway and manage secretions. And in this case, this child this child presents she has ongoing generalized tonic activity. Her airway is easily maintained with basic airway opening manoeuvres and there's minimal oral secretions. She's suctioned once and, and they seem to have settled. From a breathing point of view, as with the vast majority of pediatric emergencies, apply high flow oxygen, and you need to assess do they need any support with the breathing? Are they continuing are they do they look like they're breathing effectively through the seizure or are they apneic or would they benefit from any peak? In this case, we apply 15 litres of oxygen, but we're happy that we don't need to provide any further support at this stage. The third is circulation. You want to assess heart rate, capillary refill time, blood pressure, and get an idea of the hemodynamic status. It's also important to get early IV or IO access. And while we're doing that, if you can get IV and get some bloods away. With bloods in this case, you want to be thinking ahead about potential causes. So, FBP, really useful. Hemoglobin, if it's low, may suggest an intracranial blade. Um, platelets to check clotting and white cells looking for infection. Um, CRP will also be useful for infection and inflammation. Want to check electrolytes, calcium, magnesium, looking for any, any potential electrolyte disturbances which may be causing it. DEFG, don't ever forget glucose, and particularly important in the case of a child who's seizing. Um, culture if they're febrile, and also thinking about metabolic causes if you can't get pneumonia and a lactate. And in this case, um, the patient is hemodynamically stable. There is a, metabolic, a mild, mild metabolic acidosis on their gas, and CO two is the upper limit of normal, but within the upper or normal limits. Disability assessment: we want to look at their pupils and whether they're responsible to alert, to, to, or whether they're alert or whether they're responsive to voice, pain, or unresponsive completed your assessment as such and now fi- we're five minutes post, um, or, well, over five minutes since the, the, the paramedics have administered the rectal diazepam, you feel that you need to give another anti-seizure medication. I'm okay, keen for you to tell me through the Slido app what you think would be the obvious next choice. Would you give IV lorazepam? Would you give IV levetiracetam? Or would you give IV phenytoin? And I'll give you a few minutes, just to, or a few seconds, just to get a few responses in. Got to pull it there. We've got about 55% for IV levotiracetam, 40%-ish for IV lorazepam and IV fenotone. So IV levotiracetam is the most popular, and that would be in keeping with the, the current guidance. Um, the concern, I, I suppose, for 40% um, did suggest potentially going for a dose of IV lorazepam. It's important to note that IV, uh, the, the benzodiazepines do remain our first anti-seizure medication of choice, and there, there's a couple of reasons why. And that's one that they, given, they can be given quickly, and they also have a rapid onset. There are a number of, of, of options in terms of benzodiazepines included in the guidance, so IV lorazepam buccalmidazolam, rectal diazepam. There's some evidence to suggest that the, the, the IV lirazepam and buccalmidazolam work better than rectal diazepam. However, your choice will largely depend, I guess, on what's available, what setting you're in. If you're in a pre-hospital setting, back midazolam or rectal diazepam may, be more, may be more readily accessible than IV lorazepam. One of the big changes in the, in the recent guidelines is the timing as well of the, 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 the um, second dose of benzodiazepine. And we used to be, after it was the second dose, it was 10 minutes after the first, but it's now five minutes after the first benzodiazepine. And and you see that it is common practice to give a second dose of benzodiazepines. It's interesting though, because um, there's not actually a lot of evidence to support that. And I think part of the the reason why that is still within the guidelines is that actually it's recognised that it can take time to gain access and actually giving a second dose of benzodiazepine um, is um, important um, while you're waiting um, for IV access for some of your second um, line agents. However, um, in this case, it's the patient has already received buclomidazolam with parents and rectal diazepam with paramedics. And we need to be very, very cautious about using more than two doses of benzodiazepine because the risk um, of, of respiratory depression significantly increases. So in this case, I'd be avoiding giving a further dose of benzodiazepine because they have received two doses already. So. Levotiracetam was the um, most popular choice in the poll and that would fit with the current guidance and that's really a bit, an, another recent change in the guidelines and results really from um, two large randomized controlled trials, Concept and um, the Eclipse study, where it was shown to um, be of comparable efficacy with phenotone, which was our traditional um, next step in the algorithm. But why, if it's at comparable, efficient uh, efficacy, do we, do we do we make the change if, if, if it's only as effective? Well, I suppose there's um, a few advantages to the use of levetiracetam. One is that it can be given to any convulsing child really without any contraindications. Um, there's not, not concerns about whether the child could previously be on um, phenytoin and do you need to adjust based on that? If a child's on KEPA, they could get more levetiracetam. It's also... Can be given in a, in a um, timely manner, and it's given over um, a shorter period of time. Um, so um, it only it can be given over five minutes, as opposed to a phenytoin infusion, which is twenty minutes. Um, and it does not need any specific monitoring. The other thing is that there tends to be less um, fewer side effects, um, and and children tend to be tolerated better from a hemodilma perspective. So although it's comparable efficacy to phenytoin, there are a number of potential benefits and it has become our mainline second, our second choice after benzodiazepines. So we're now 10 minutes after the, the, the completion of the um, levotiracetam infusion. Unfortunately, there's been no significant change in the overall um, hedonimic status of the child and she continues um, to have generalized tonic, tonic activity. You've, you have, when, when you started giving the leave at time, you also called for the anaesthetic reg to attend because you were concerned that, um, that if, if, we, if it would, they didn't respond, they may need intubation and rapid sequence induction. The anaesthetic reg is adult trained that is doing a paediatric placement and has never intubated the child before. Their consultant is on their way in, but is five minutes away. And I want you to tell me at this stage what you think the most appropriate next step would be. Would you proceed immediately to rapid sequence induction or would you administer a further second line anti-seizure agent such as phenytoin or phenobarbital? I'll give you a few seconds to put that in the, the slide. Okay, I think it's probably reasonable to move on. We're getting about a 75-25% split on in preference of a second line anti-seizure agent. And that's right, I think. And the reason I say I think is that the guidance on this is actually very vague. And there's no real clear guidance as to what the next best step is. I suppose that the caveat in the guidance is really, are the team ready to proceed to rapid sequence induction? And that means physically ready in terms of having the equipment ready and, and to hand, but also the right people there. Um, and, and, or, and, and do you feel that you've got time to delay that by whatever's needed? Um, now, there's I suppose this again is a, is a change in the, the most recent guidelines. Um, and it's largely based on some evidence from the CONCEPT trial, which suggested that actually by giving a second um, anti-seizure medication, you can reduce the risk of proceeding to rapid sequence induction by 50%. But the trade-off is that you will delay, potentially delay then rapid sequence induction if you're given the phenyton, for example, time to work by up to 20 minutes and that's whether that's the right thing to do. And I think there is some uncertainty as regards this, and I think a lot of it will come down to... Um, confidence um, and of, of the staff who are present at the time. Your two options should you choose to give a second anti-seizure um, medication are phenytoin and phenobarbitone. Phenotone is generally what we'd recommend if the child isn't already on um, phenytoin, but if they are, um, then phenobarbitone would be the next option. It is important that these to bear in mind that at each stage, start preparing for the next stage. Preparing for an RSI takes time, preparing phenytoin takes time. So, as soon as you're given the leaf of time you want to be thinking about the next stage. Okay, so the last slide you wanted to give the second line anti epileptic. We've done that, and unfortunately, we're in a situation where we're still, um, the child is still seasoned, um, and we've made the decision that actually we're going to need to go for rapid sequence induction to try and terminate the seizure. And at this point then I want you to decide and tell me which induction agent would you choose for the rapid sequence induction. And your three options are thiopentyl, ketamine, propofol. Okay, we kind of got neck and neck there with thiopentyl and ketamine. Ketamine just slightly overtaken and propofol is sort of a a definite third out of those three. Ketamine. So again, this is an area where there's been a bit of a shift in terms of the guidance. Traditionally, the IPLS algorithms were very much in favour of thiopental. However, the latest guidance suggests ketamine or propofol or thiopental. Not particularly helpful. Um, there is a definite sort of preference in the guideline towards the use of ketamine. Um, and the reason for that, I suppose, is due to the, the, that it can be used in children who are hemodynamically unstable with less risk um, of, of hemodynamic compromise. And that's the reason why it is most likely um, the most sort of, sort of commonly recommended now. However, that doesn't actually reflect the practice in a lot of units. And I know chatting to the guys nice you and preparing for today's talk here in Belfast, um, they whilst it's potentially better if you're hemodynamic, uh, there's hemodynamic instability. A lot of these patients aren't actually hemodynamically unstable um, and they feel that thiopental and or propofol would actually work better um, in terms of the, the effect of terminating the seizure. So um, there's, it might be worth the discussion with the panel later, but this is not something which is, is very clear cut. And I think actually within our hospital, we're not sort of completely sold on the move um, towards ketamine in, in all situations to first-line agent. Just want to throw in there about peraldehyde because I know some of us from a certain generation like peraldehyde. We've seen it used when it used to be more prominent in the guidance and seems to work. And um, the the guidance at the minute is um, really suggesting that it, it shouldn't delay and um, giving a second-line anti-seizure medication. So it's worth considering if you're struggling with IV or I/O access, or if the child has it mentioned on a specific seizure plan. The guidance at the minute doesn't. Um, routinely suggest using it, um, but again, we're in a, if you're in a situation where you're struggling, um, it may be something to consider, but it's not routinely included in the guidance. you've used your ketamine, your rapid sequence induction, the patient has, you think, stopped seizing. Just on this stage, this stage, think about some other investigations you might want to consider. One is neuroimaging or CT scan. Um, And and not everybody who comes in season needs a CT scan, but there are some indications where it would be uh, you'd have a lower threshold for doing it. One would be if there'd been any sort of trauma or you're suspicious of non-accidental injury. Second would be if you've got a focal onset to the start of the seizure, and that's where history is important. Third would be if you've got a um, VP shunt in situ. Um, So they're all reasons why you may want to consider a CT scan may also want to think about lumbar puncture, toxicology, metabolic investigations, um, anti-seizure medication levels, and an EEG-dependent. If you go back to the causes, we talked about the start depending on what you think are the most likely causes. It's also important to consider, just because you've the test and you've carried out rapid sequence induction, have you actually stopped the seizure? How do you know? And again, this is something that might be worth a panel discussion. How do you know they stopped seizing? And what if they haven't? Um, Other points we we thought would be important to mention is that um, muscle relaxants are not really, we we, we recommend avoiding the use of muscle relaxants. And also, generally, our advice from the ICU team here would be not to worry about switching from a nasal tube or certain arterial lines. A lot of these children, um, when they're transferred to ICU, are woken up really very quickly following um, admission to the unit um, and don't need um, such invasive um, care. And I suppose then that really raises the question of can you actually extubate in the district general? Does the child after the seizure stop need to come to PICU? Um, and a, and another shameless plug for a previous pro-con debate that we had during our last um, paediatric emergencies day, which is available on YouTube, um, where Gail and Ben discussed this very topic, um, should children with status epilepticus be extubated in the GGH? That's something to look at for further reading. So key learning points, I suppose step one, step two, there has been some changes in the, in the guidance with shorter five minute interval between the benzodiazepine doses. Uh, and it is important to, to, to mention that pre-hospital treatment is endorsed, but should be taken into consideration in regards to choices about further medication. Uh, with regards to step three, the second line drug of choice is now levotiracetam, which is a change from phenytoin. Step four, if the team are ready, you may want to proceed to RSI with propofol, fentanyl, or ketamine. Um, but if not, it's reasonable in certain circumstances to give a second line anti-epileptic and prepare for RSI. Thank you, and I'm happy to take any questions.
1: Um, there was a question that came up about if the seizure stops, and I think this will have to go to the group as well, but if the seizure stops, so you've given two doses of benzos, and then four hours later or three hours later, the child starts seizing again, do you restart the algorithm at the start again with your two doses of benzos?
0: It's a difficult question. I suppose it depends. Uh, you know how, uh, how, um, how, how the child is. Have are they have, have they was, you know, Are they back on the ward, back to normal? How they can sort of return to their normal self, the um, active running around, or have they been quite sleepy, drowsy, following that, or or ended up proceeding down the algorithm to to, to sort of um, you know extensive uh, sort of second line agents i would be i would exercise caution with benzodiazepines Mm -hmm. if they've had them within sort of four hours before um and um so i i don't it it is a difficult one and i'm not sure what other people think but i would well i certainly don't know that i would be taking a double dose you may want to give a smaller dose and and take um you know slightly lower potentially but um i'm not sure
1: from my perspective i think you're right it's you you're potentially going to give them uh, they're going to have respiratory compromise quicker if you you double it up again. Um, mm. I do use peraldehyde uh, as one of my um, uh, seizure anti seizure medications. Um, and if I haven't used that, I might potentially use uh, peraldehyde and then move on to giving uh, kepra um, because they've obviously had a seizure that was treated with benzos and it's still ongoing. Uh, so I'd probably load them with with uh, kepra as well. Uh, it costs us.
2: I'm I'm exactly um, with Judah on this. Um, I have a low threshold for loading with Ketra. Sometimes we even use it as a, a bridge to try and avoid intubation. Even one penny turn has been used as a Hail Mary if it's been given slightly earlier. Um, but if we've loaded with benzos, there's been an hour or two where the child uh, has... Recovered hasn't had any seizures, is out of the postictal phase ish, uh, and then we need something else as a moderating factor before we load with Kepra. Then, peraldehyde is a it can be a lifesaver, really. I really like it, Peter.
3: Yeah, yeah I was just going to say that you know, this all depends on the context of the patient, um, and. You know, people worry about giving repeat doses of benzos in case it causes respiratory depression. Do you know what does cause respiratory depression? An RSI. So, you know, in terms of context here, if the patient's had a couple of hours of being good, the worst thing for this child is to end up on a ventilator if they don't need to. Now, if you manage their seizures and they've got respiratory depression and they need that, then so be it as long as you've managed the seizures. So, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that anyone else is wrong. It's very reasonable to think about other drugs, but I wouldn't be scared to use appropriate drugs if. <laughs> If it's ours down the line and actually respiratory depression, you just have to accept that that's a sequelae of managing the seizures appropriately.
4: Yeah, I think I'd be tempted as well to give a single dose um, if it was a number of hours, like you say, four hours down the line because they, they worked before and they terminated mm-hmm. the seizures and it's recurred again. so It, it, may, it may well work, but I, I would probably caution giving two doses. But again, there's no actual guideline for you to follow. You're having to Make up your own mind based on the your your own clinical judgment.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. And then you can start over analysing how how long's too long afterwards. And I suppose you could get into pharmacokinetics of benzodiazepines. But at, what about six hours? What about eight hours? I, I think it is. It's using your judgment based on how they've responded to it initially, their their initial presentation, um, and and where you are as well. You know, and how equipped you are to deal with potential side effects and complications. So, um, it's a good question because there's no definite answer to it. In terms of just I wouldn't mind discussing the, the, the induction agents for with guys from PICU because new guidelines definitely sort of seem to push towards ketamine. I know um Chris certainly when we were chatting about it, it wouldn't be your first line choice necessarily if they were yeah. is stable.
4: You might you might have missed this, Ben. We did this um during the questions from the DGH. So we we, we had a we had a good detailed discussion on this, and there was a bit, bit of mixed feelings on it, but um again, I think whatever's within your own normal routine and whatever you think is safe to do, you know, it's good that you now have a, a choice to include it if you if that's your preferred option. Probably the, the the question that might be worth um covering is you know, what how do you tell the patient stop fitting? I think that was your other one, wasn't
0: it? Yeah, how do you tell they've stopped and, and what do you do at that stage if they if they're if it's still ongoing?
1: Yeah. One of the questions is actually um, if you've paralyzed them because you've given them uh, RSI, uh, do you use Cfam so that might come into this as well.
4: Yeah, so you're only really going to have Cfam by the time you get to the ICU um, and the DGHs aren't going to have, have access to it. So it's how, how, how do you tell the kid to stop filling and I, I think it's the other signs that you're looking for. You're looking for the heart rate and the blood pressure to settle and i think in particular the pupils are are, are very helpful
2: which which brings us um, full circle to the my pet hate of atropine as a would see, mm-hmm. choice of drug for intubation because obviously atropine causes meiosis and then your pupils stop reacting and then y- you lose a significant diagnostic tool before you arrive on PQ as to whether this child is fitting or not. Because we rely on heart rate blood pressure pupils. And if you've taken for me, possibly the most important one away because you wanted to use atropine, then I, you're blunting your diagnostic ability. Um and so that that for me is a, a you know a big big no no. So dilute adrenaline, especially if the child is a bit you know, shocked is much better. If they're not shocked then um there might be a reason uh, to use it. The the only caveat is traumatic brain injury where you don't want to get high blood pressure spikes and, you know, there might be part of a Cushing's response when you're hypertensive. So then you would need probably to use atropine rather than adrenaline. That would be my only sort of caveat. Yeah,
3: Costas, I tend to use adrenaline in all circumstances, to be honest. I can't even remember the last time I used, you know, atropine preferentially um, I think you know we need to be careful that if we are saying or there's suggestions made that oh you know we need sort of Cfam or EEG to make sure the seizures have stopped if we, you know if people start suggesting that then it will absolutely move district general hospitals away from extubating these children before they end up being transferred to an Icu and I think the vast if these children present with a first seizure or need a workup for a seizure and it's unusual then that's one thing but if you've got a child with an own epilepsy Um, and a known cause for seizures and they present in status and they need to progress to an RSI. I think these are a group of patients that usually can be very safely extubated in a district general hospital and woke up and assessed clinically. So um, in that cohort, I wouldn't support the need to be transferred somewhere for EEG monitoring or CFAM.
4: The the other important thing is uh, Ben had mentioned avoiding muscle relaxant. Um, that was after you've intubated the patients. Obviously, you're going to need muscle relaxant to put the tube in, but you shouldn't be topping this patient up with muscle relaxant. And if I'm, I would normally muscle relax most ventilated patients for transferring them. The seizure patients, I don't tend to because, again, you've lost another one of your useful markers. I like them well sedated, but not muscle relaxed, so I can see if they start fitting. Mm.
2: I think the extub- extubating locally, um, uh, policy uh, is really taken off in many parts of the UK to be honest uh, but the, 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 there is an art to it um, but essentially if the child is more than six months if there's no trauma and if the CT is normal then, uh up to three quarters of these patients can extubate locally provided we haven't given too many benzos uh, we haven't kept them on a long acting paralytic and we haven't topped them up with opiates all of which suppress breathing obviously uh, but if you manage them with a bit of propofol on the background or gaseous anesthesia in the background then all you have to do is switch the anesthetic off and they'll when they're ready to pull the tube out they will tell you um uh, hyperventilate them a bit as well to retain co2 to stimulate those baroreceptors and three out of four uh, patients like that would would extubate. It's uh and it it empowers the GHs, I think, in a way.